This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So uh, this evening, I'm launching our new programme. So the new programme for Sangamites, which will run from January through to the end of April, on the topic of the 21st century Bodhisattva. Uh, In a minute or so, I will explain the term Bodhisattva uh, uh, for anyone who doesn't know it. So... uh, Well, essentially, a bodhisattva is one who is devoted to uh, ending suffering for other beings, for all other beings. So, uh, pouring their life energy uh, into altruism, into the care for other beings. So, uh, yeah, I'll be looking at what it means uh, for us to follow that path, to be trainee bodhisattvas. Um, now in our world in these times. We actually explored the Bodhisattva ideal last year as well. Um, In a way, it's such an important central teaching that we could just explore the Bodhisattva ideal uh, all the time. That would be very fruitful. Um, But this programme is a bit different uh, to the way that we explored it uh, last year. Um, in a way, I think it's going to be more focused on, uh, on kind of us, um, the realities of how we grapple with this ideal in our own lives in this particular uh, time in history. So I'm hoping that we can uh, go on a bit of a journey together as a community, as a Sangha, over these uh, four months. Um, so helping each other work out uh, how we can engage with the world. So, yeah, a journey exploring what it would look like, what it does look like uh, for each of us to have a sense of that, uh, that ideal. Uh, yeah, because we don't have to do it on our own. In fact, we absolutely can't do it on our own. Uh, and we can share with others... Uh, in our lives, in this uh, community, about the things that we care about, what concerns us, things that might break our hearts about the world. Um, So share that with others. Um, Share about the pitfalls, some of the pitfalls that we might get into, things like overwhelm or despair, resentment, anger. Um, And have the support of friends, the support of others in kind of grappling, seeing what those tendencies might be for us and uh, being more creative in how we respond to them. Uh, So we can come together to gang up on dukkha. Dukkha is a Pali term that means suffering. So we can come together and gang up on dukkha. We don't have to be on our own grappling with it. So, yeah, working out how we offer something of value, healing to the world. That's my uh, aspiration for this Sangha programme. And uh, we'll be drawing on material by an order member called Akupa. Um, It's actually available online on uh, thebuddhistcentre.com on the website. Uh, So if you wanted to, you know, engage with it like that, reading a bit more, uh, I can point you in the direction of it. And we'll be alternating, um, as we go through the months, we'll be alternating on the whole evenings of uh, input and exploration around this theme. And then the following week having an evening on meditation. Um, So more meditative evenings, alternating with evenings where we might have a talk or workshop, just be a bit more discursive. because meditation is just so important for this work as well as in its own right. We can't uh, do the outer work of 
helping to transform the world for the better without doing the inner work um, of transforming ourselves. Um, without the inner work, the risk is that we just add to the mess. Yeah. So I'll be quoting some um, verses from a Cooper's Shambhala Warrior Mind Training uh, verses. There's some beautiful, pithy teachings uh, that some of you will have heard. Uh, we've read them before, um, which he composed over ten years ago now. Um, and uh, yeah, and he 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 uh, at the beginning of the verses he expresses his gratitude to a woman called Joanna Macy, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, an American environmentalist activist um, and is now I think 88 and is still extraordinary I heard a talk that she gave last year, she's phenomenal um, so yeah he's, uh, he talks of his gratitude to her in composing these verses so uh, yeah I hope that in, in the, perhaps in those verses and some of what I say there will be uh, I don't know, a few kind of pithy words that uh, that you can find um, valuable as something that might uh, help uh, inspire and kind of um, yeah, give you something to to be inspired by. So I'll start with some basics. What is a bodhisattva? Uh, so uh, yeah, so a bodhisattva is someone who's committed to ending suffering for other beings, for themselves and for other beings. They've seen beyond the world as we know it. In a way, they're not caught up in the world. They're not intoxicated by worldly things and pleasures and status and achievement. So they've seen through that kind of mundane, worldly stuff. Can I, but, can I, ask, can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, so is that something that you aim to achieve by becoming a bodhisattva? Or is that something that you have necessarily have an experience of before you become a bodhisattva? An experience of? Um, of seeing through. <coughs> ah, the seeing through. Yeah. So I'm, I'm seeing it as, well, it's both, in a way, a lofty idea which can be attained and it's something that is a working ground. We're a work in progress. So there may be a degree to which we've seen through things, a moment where we see through and then we kind of get caught up again in the world. Okay. Um, yeah, so there might be a sense of a flash of that right. that, that we see, but it, that, that vision might not be something that lasts, that's right. sustained, yeah. Right. So, uh, so it's a sort of a grey area we'll be able to in a way, we're all works in progress, move, moving along that um, that path. It doesn't have to be a kind of done deal. Yeah. Um, probably in the in the myths, um, where there's a myth of the bodhisattva who is perfect, but we are not perfect. We are bodhisattvas in training, doing our best, um, but not always seeing that clearly. Not always, um, yeah, kind of grasping it perfectly. I hope that makes sense. It might make more sense as I, as I, as I go on, I hope. Um, yeah, so there's that sense of they've, they've seen something, they've seen through the world to some degree, but they choose to stay in the world and keep working for the good of the world with a sense of um, yeah, solidarity with other living beings, a deep sense of solidarity and care uh, for other living beings. And the Bodhisattva ideal is this um, ideal of there being an altruistic dimension to our practice of care for others. And it was very much embodied in the figure of the Buddha, um, a life devoted to helping others. and but some years after the Buddha's life, they, they developed this. Uh, they came into being this term of the Bodhisattva ideal, um, and it was um, it, em- it emerged historically to reaffirm this altruistic dimension um, of practice. 
um, as a kind of um, antidote, you could say, to practitioners getting a bit too focused on their own practice, their own path, my meditation, my progress, my path. Um, so it's a kind of, uh, it's an antidote to, uh, yeah, getting too focused on ourselves, on our own practice, and yeah, just reminding us to go outward, which uh, I imagine we all need a bit of that kind of reminder at some times. I know I do, for sure, get caught up um, a bit in my own practice. So, uh, yeah, Buddhist practice isn't about isn't just about a private private experiences, um, our own private realizations or meditations. Um, it's about what we do with those realizations, how we take them into uh, our interactions with others. So Cooper says, I thought this was a good, uh, lovely phrase. He says, "Getting less self-centered." isn't just an incidental side effect of the spiritual life. It is the spiritual life. So it's all about that, um, that move um, away from focus on self. So, uh, yeah, the Bodhisattva ideal is about living a life based on metta, loving-kindness. Um, in a way, it's about living out the metta-bhavna meditation practice, as if life was one big, marvellous metta-bhavna, uh, taking it off the meditation cushion and out into the world. So we've got a shrine that Annie helped me make this evening. Um, she was having a migraine, so she's headed home. But um, she helped me make the shrine to Amitabha. Um, we could have had any of the, uh, any Buddhas on the shrine, but we've got Amitabha, um, because this talk that I'm giving is so much centrally about loving kindness, about metta. Um, so uh, Amitabha is the Buddha of infinite love. Uh, just felt like the figure that I wanted to have on the shrine. And I, I was just thinking, pondering this subject, that it is hard to live with awareness in our world. Uh, surrounded as we are by so much suffering and in a way ex exposed to, in touch with it possibly more um, than in the past through the news, internet um, there's so many ways of us becoming aware of suffering in the world and that's hard to come into relationship to that so in a way we just I think there's something about starting by just acknowledging that that is painful because um, if we don't do that well we'll either be overwhelmed or just want to retreat into our own private kind of comfortable world so I recently heard um, an American journalist an activist a social campaigner a man called Van Jones and he said something like Activists are getting more spiritual, and spiritual people are getting more active. And this is a very good development. So the, the activists getting more spiritual, and the spiritual people getting more uh, active in the world. And in a way, I suppose, my, my talk this evening is an exploration of what that means for activism to be a spiritual practice. Um, for our engagement with the world to be spiritual. And in essence, I think it means that our activities, our activism, our engagement, is infused with metta, with loving-kindness. Uh, and that's metta for ourselves, and metta for others, loving-kindness. And even loving-kindness for the bad guys. Whoever we think the bad guys are, it's uh, loving-kindness for them as well. So for all beings, including future generations and other species, not just limited to human beings. So here's the first line of the, a Cooper's 
uh, warrior mind training verses. Firmly establish your intention to live your life for the healing of the world. Be conscious of it, honour it, nurture it every day. Firmly establish your intention to live your life for the healing of the world. Be conscious of it, honour it, nurture it every day. So it's setting, uh, it's setting an intention to orient towards that ideal. Using the ideal as a compass. Uh, so I find it helpful to remind myself that the ideal is like a compass to steer by. It's not a stick to beat yourself up with. So when we have ideals, it can be quite easy to... Um, to kind of engage with an ideal in a way that brings in a sense of a should. I should be like this, they should be like this, I should be doing more, they should be doing more, we should be better. It's quite a practice, I think, to have an ideal and hold it in a way which is loving to ourselves as well. Uh, So using an ideal as a kind of compass point to head in that direction. Um, and watching out if actually that ideal has become a, sti- a stick, more of a stick to beat yourself up with. So uh, feeling guilty could be a sign that you've started firing mental, mentally in your mind, firing shoulds at yourself. And feeling resentful could be a sign that you're firing shoulds at other people. I definitely find that when my inner narrative seems to feature the word should in it, then uh, one of those things is often going on. It's It's like a little beacon going up if I spot it. So it's a really central teaching for us in uh, in the Tree Ratna community, this Bodhisattva ideal. It's very much at the heart of uh, what we're about. It's one of the four uh, ordination vows that order members, uh, people with these things, um, take at ordination. So we accept our ordination for the benefit of all beings. And Akupa talks about the the Bodhisattva ideal uh, as, uh, in a way, a myth to live your life by. And he says it's perhaps the most sane, most meaningful myth by which you can live your life. And I think often when we first come along to a Buddhist centre, we do come for ourselves, inevitably. We come often because our lives are tough, because we're suffering, because things aren't going quite how we thought they should, how we wanted them to go. So we often come looking for some answers, looking for friendship, connection, looking for something that will help us with suffering. And it's a strange thing, but to become uh, more free of our suffering, we need both to engage with ourselves, to focus on ourselves, to do healing, the loving of ourselves that we need to do, And we also somehow need to let go of ourselves, go beyond ourselves, uh, focus on others. We need to do both of those things. And gradually as we practice, there's a shift from me to us. So, And and us is a kind of wider and wider concept of a a concern for, uh, for others. Though of course there's a gravitational pull back to me and my practice and my meditation and what I want. So there's both this kind of moving out and then a bit of a gravitational pull back. It's a bit like breathing, isn't it? They're, they're both, um, yeah, both going on. So the Bodhisattva ideal is like that really vital reminder um, to keep on countering that tendency to revolve around me, uh, to keep coming back to self. So I'm going to talk about three aspects 
to following the Bodhisattva path and some of the pitfalls that we can encounter. I've encountered every one of these pitfalls, I think. Um, so, yeah, some of the pitfalls that we can encounter when we're trying to follow that path of altruism, caring for others, bodhisattva ideal. And uh, this is some of the strange things that I've put on the bottom of the shrine here, represent these pitfalls. I'll explain each of them as we go along. So the first aspect um, I wanted to talk about, the first one is the importance of metta for oneself, loving kindness for oneself. So I feel very passionate about this altruistic dimension of practice. And I also feel very passionate about not burning out. Because I have done that. And this is one of the pitfalls that we can fall into when we're trying to follow a bodhisattva path. So this is the first um, little thing that you've got on the shrine here. don't know if you can see um, any little, what are they called, pipe cleaners. This is a pipe cleaner person, pipe cleaner lady, and she's in bed flat on her back. Um, can you see? She's just there, so she's on a little, on a red bed. And uh, I think she's got a hand to her head. She's got a sore head and she's very tired. And uh, so she's exhausted and flat on her back because she's burnt out. So uh, that's not being on the Bodhisattva path. That is definitely wandering off the path and falling into a bit of a pitfall. So the path, in a way, is the red ribbon. And then there's these, um, these pitfalls to various sides of it. So the Bodhisattva ideal is not about leaving yourself out, neglecting yourself and your needs. Not about doing too much and getting physically exhausted. We need to take care of ourselves. So it's about metta for the world and for ourselves. We need both. It's not an either or thing. And if you think that you have a tendency to leave yourself out, then I highly recommend a book which is called When the Body Says No. When the Body Says No. So if we keep pushing ourselves, at some point, in some way or other, our body will give us feedback that we've done too much and our body will say, find a way of saying no, enough. So yeah, self-meta is really essential. And uh, self-meta, meta, loving kindness for ourselves, um, is about taking care of ourselves and acting in our own best interests. So it isn't about doing just whatever we fancy and giving in to craving. It's not a path of chocolate and alcohol and DVDs. Those things might appeal to us and feel like a treat and feel like sometimes we're just giving ourselves what we want, what we need. Um, and they will have their place uh, for some of us in our lives. Um, but they can, they can kind of pretend to be self-meta, but they're not. Um, so uh, Cooper's verses, when he's uh, talking about um, uh, meta for ourselves, they talk about prioritising. So here's one verse. Simplify. Clear away the dead wood in your life. Look for the heart wood and give it the first call on your time, the best of your energy. So looking for the heart wood, what's most precious in your life, prioritising that, giving that your energy. The verses also talk about fulfilling your potential. Following your heart, realise your gifts. Cultivate them with diligence to offer knowledge and skill to the world. And the verses talk about practising ethics. Train in non-violence of body, speech and mind. With great patience to yourself. Learn to make beautiful each action, word and thought. So all this is, is how we do self-meta. 
prioritising what's good for us, expressing ourselves, our own gifts, helping ourselves to flower, practising ethics. So at the other end of the shrine, there's another pitfall. You might see a bit of a, a black hole and a couple of legs vanishing. Well, the legs are in the air, actually, and the rest of the body is vanishing down it. don't know if you can make that out. That's another pipe, poor pipe cleaner person. And uh, they are headed down a black hole, and this pitfall is overwhelm. Overwhelm and despair. So, uh, yeah, we might become, in a way, not just physically... Uh, worn out, but also emotionally depleted um, by uh, yeah, connecting with other people's suffering as well as our own. We can lose our positivity and our ability to feel joy in the face of uh, so many things in the world that are troubling. So it's really important that we do what we can to stay well-resourced and grounded and positive and in touch with whatever's good and delightful in our lives, with what's, what's joyful for us. So Cooper's voice, verses also talk about joy. He says, let go into the music of life and dance. Yeah. So we don't need to feel guilty. It's important not to feel guilty about being happy. Our joy, our happiness is a very important contribution on those occasions when we're blessed with it. It won't be all the time. But when we are blessed with happiness, um, that's a very lovely gift that we bring to the world. Um, I think at times I've felt like I shouldn't be happy because there's so much trouble in the world. But actually, it's a blessed relief. Make the most of it, enjoy it, share it when it's there. And I'll say a little bit more about um, overwhelm, dealing with overwhelm, kind of ways to deal with overwhelm later. So that was the first aspect, self-meta, loving kindness for ourselves. The second one uh, is the importance of um, what I'm calling doing the inner work, the inner work of transformation on ourselves. So the Bodhisattva ideal is definitely not about being busy and running around saving the world. It's not just about what we do, uh, but about the mental state, the state of mind behind what we do. So we need to do the inner work of transforming our own negative mental states. So by that I mean mental states that make us unhappy. And sometimes they make the people around us unhappy as well. So that inner work is the work of befriending and calming our own demons of resentment and aversion, ill will, irritability, judging, blaming, feeling separate from others. And a lot of that uh, unhelpful thinking that depresses us, brings us down, um, I've been reading recently um, uh, some, and listening to some talks on neuroscience and it seems like a lot of that unhelpful thinking comes from the left hemisphere of our brain or comes, and comes from our tendency, the tendency to, for, for us to be quite dominated by the left hemisphere of our brains. Um, so that's the bit that does planning, analysing, judging, um, that bit of our brains which can drive us a bit mad when we're trying to meditate and we want to be quiet and actually the, the mind has got a whole bunch of other ideas about what it's going to do. Uh, there's a, a woman, a neuroscientist, you might have heard of, called Jill, is it Bolte Taylor or Bolt Taylor? Um, so she had a stroke, she was a neuroscientist and she had a stroke that damaged the left side of her brain. And in a way, she kind of watched it happening. And because she was a neuroscientist, she knew a bit about what was happening in the brain while, while this was going on. Um, so I think it was painful, but as well as the pain, she also felt a joy that arose 
when that left side of the brain was kind of going offline. So she was sort of watching, watching it close down and watching the critical functions, the judging functions, the kind of worrying, egotistic part of the brain just kind of close down and go offline. And uh, she's written a book called My Stroke of Insight. Uh, she's also uh, got a TED talk, various talks online if you're interested to, uh, to read it. Um, so she does talk about it as an insight experience, um, having, this, um, having this stroke and having part of her brain just kind of stop functioning. And uh, she talks about making yourself a safe place to be. Making yourself a safe place to be. And uh, in part, she talks about that as, uh, as taming the left side of the brain. So the kind of planning, chattering, judging part. Kind of working with that and taming that side of the brain. And shifting to the right side of the brain... Uh, which is where we, ha- we have physical experience, sensing, sensual, empathic feeling. Um, so that's that other part of the brain, which um, in the second half, when we meditate, uh, we'll be encouraging that part, of, uh, that part of our brains, giving it a bit more airtime. So, um, so sometimes we're not actually a very safe place to be for ourselves. We're reactive or we've got um, judgments, blame going on in our minds. Um, and uh, yeah, our backs can, can kind of go up quite quickly um, we can, when there's criticism or uh, difference of opinion. And uh, yeah, we're just looking at whether we're willing to disarm ourselves. Are we willing to disarm a little bit? So, uh, yeah, so the inner work is, uh, is in a way about helping us become a more effective vessel for doing good in the world, more empathic, kinder, um, perhaps less identified with the project of saving the world. I think that's been a journey for me. Just doing what needs to be done without being so identified with it uh, as your role. So bodhisattva activity is fueled by metta, not by anger or rage. So yeah, I just wanted to say a few words about anger, because I think it, yeah, anger is a, a quite natural response um, to things that we think are wrong or unfair or unkind. It's quite natural to have a response of anger. In a way, it's just us saying no that's not okay for me. That's not the values that I um, value in the world. Um, so I think kind of just the anger that just flares up is quite a natural response. But sometimes people think that they need to kind of keep, <coughs> keep their anger going. They need to kind of stoke their anger um, as a way of keeping them motivated to act. And I think we don't need to do that. So if anger arises, in a way, fine, there it is. Feel it, acknowledge it, feel it in the body, um, and perhaps connect to some of the values behind it. In a way, what are the things that you value um, that haven't been honoured and therefore... You know, you've had a response of feeling angry. And then cultivate metta, then cultivate loving kindness. So we don't need to put energy into cultivating more anger. More anger and more fear. Because the old parts of our brain do that quite effectively already. Without any extra help or energy put into that. Now anger can be very destructive, can't it, when comes out from us, we shoot from the hip. Um, yeah, it's, it's easy to, to wound others without meaning to. So I think that pitfall is uh, moving on from the exhausted lady on her back 
It's like flames. There's a flaming up there. And, uh, and then we can kind of tear things to shreds a bit. So underneath those flames there, there's a little heap of, um, uh, of some, what were the shapes of red hearts that have been torn to shreds. So that's the pitfall of, in a way, cultivated anger. Um, so I'm making a distinction between the kind of the natural anger, which there may not be much we can do about, and the sort of more cultivated anger when we sort of there's a bit of intention behind it and we um, we kind of stoke the fire of it. And we need to put energy into cultivating metta, not anger. So that's our evolutionary potential of loving and befriending. Uh, those ideas that neuroscience is exploring now, but actually the Buddha taught to more than 2,500 years ago. We don't need to worry that if we let go of anger, um, we'll somehow be passive. Here's a quote that um, actually Vajra Devi, you gave me a, a wee while ago from a woman called Byron Katie. Um, so if you don't know her, uh, you might enjoy finding out about uh, what she does. Helps people see how stressful thoughts are causing them suffering. So she says, a question I often hear is, if I do the work, that inner work, and I'm no longer angry and fearful, then why would I get involved in social action? If I felt completely peaceful, why would I bother taking any action at all? And my answer is, because that's what love does. The fear of not being fearful is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people. They believe that without stress or anger, they wouldn't act and they would be passive. Whoever has the impression that peace isn't active has never known peace as I know it. I am entirely motivated without anger. The truth sets us free and freedom acts. So, uh, so for me, I find those very helpful kind of words of power to bear in mind. Because that's what love does. So that's our practice, to make metta, loving kindness, more and more our motivation more and more um, the mental attitude that impels us to act. So there's another pitfall um, under this area of the inner work. So in the middle, you can see some rather spiky things, um, some holly leaves sitting there being a bit spiky. Um, so for me, they're representing the pitfall of resentment that sense of just being a bit frustrated and irritated um, and thinking that other people should be doing more and feeling a bit resentful. Uh, when we're in a kind of harried state, because actually we've been overdoing it and are heading for miss um, burnout and, and uh, there. And, uh, and we feel envious, possibly. I think that's what I've done. Of other people looking at their ease, looking happy... And we think, oh, they should do more. And if they were doing more, then I could relax too. So that's that kind of little demon of uh, resentment when we've left ourselves out. So these are some of the areas for inner work that we can do. Unhelpful mental states of resentment, anger, blame. And Akupa's uh, verses talk about the importance of doing that inner work as well as the work out in the world. He says, Hold in a single vision, in the same thought, the transformation of yourself and the transformation of the world. Live your life around that edge, always keeping it in sight. As a bird flies on two wings, balance outer activity with inner sustenance. So that was the second aspect. Um, 
that aspect of the importance of doing the inner work, transforming our uh, whatever our inner stuff is. So the third one, um, the third one is the importance of loving kindness for everyone. So metta for all without exception. Even for the people who seem to be behaving badly. Even the people that we might think are causing problems. Because they've been conditioned to behave that way. Things will have happened in their life uh, that have led to the things that they're doing now. And the most helpful response that we can have to them, the responses are responses based on compassion and not on hatred. Seeing if we can see through to their suffering as well as the suffering that they might be causing to others. So, yeah, it's not going to help to hate people who we think are causing problems. Uh, Van Jones, this uh, American journalist who I was listening to, says, Hating the haters doesn't help. Adding hate to hate doesn't create less hate. Sounds quite obvious, doesn't it, put like that. So that's him in 2018. And, uh, and then the Buddha, 2,500 years ago and more, said, hatred never yet ceased with hatred. Hatred only ceases with love. So maybe, eventually, now we'll catch on with that message. So yeah, it's taking that fourth stage of the metta bhavna where we bring to mind someone we're finding difficult, feeling aversion towards and uh, trying to feel metta for them as well. Making the metta bhavna a way of life. Not demonising and polarising people. So it's very easy to create a kind of enemy in image I think in our minds when there's another person who we're finding difficult. So um, over on the other side, towards the black hole of overwhelm and despair, there's a little demon, a two-dimensional demon. I don't know if you can see him. He's got a little pitchfork, which is sort of wilting a bit. There's, I found, on the internet, I found some very terrifying images of demons. I was looking for an image of a demon to print out, and I just, I just thought, well, I don't really want to bring that in, actually, and put that on the shrine. They were quite gruesome, some of them. So there you go, you've got a cartoon demon... And in a way, I think that's what it is. It's like it's a two-dimensional cutout. That's what we do when we create an enemy image of someone. We've stopped seeing, seeing them in 3D as a real human being. We've just kind of got a two-dimensional image of the bits of them that we don't like. And it is a bit of a kind of cartoon that we're carrying around in our head, a kind of enemy image. Um, but it is very easy to do. To just, um, uh, yeah, demonise and kind of create these images. So a Cooper's verses say, When you see weapons of hate, disarm them with love. Sit with your hatred until you feel the fear beneath it. Sit with fear until you fear the com- feel the compassion beneath that. So those are um, the three aspects that I wanted to emphasise when trying to tread the Bodhisattva path. So they are metta for ourselves, then doing the inner work, and then remembering that it is metta for all, metta for everyone. Uh, No exceptions. So just to conclude, I'll just say a little bit about... um, Anyway, talk more personally about the, these pitfalls um, in my own life. Um, so in my mid-twenties, when I was working at Save the Children, um, and uh, I sort of caught myself being rather self-important and pleased with myself for doing this good work, and quite judgmental of other people. So I had a sense of, I'm saving the world, why are other people not doing helpful things? Um, so it was just 
at the beginning of starting to see my own judgmentalism, self-importance, grandiosity, um, and seeing the importance of doing that in a work. So it's like I was trying to save the world on the outside, and I hadn't really realised how important the inner work was. I just, um, I just started going to the London Buddhist Centre and learning to meditate. And then uh, a few years later, in my early 30s, I was working for a little charity, um, working on a range of issues, including domestic violence. And I think I was feeling quietly enraged about the world and very serious. I don't think I was very good company, actually, at that time. Because I just felt so serious, so weighed down by the world. And, uh, and I, I think I just really started to clock that self-meta, um, the implications of the metabarvara and of self-meta was actually that it included me being happy and joyful. That there was, you know, that was allowed. It was a bit as if I kind of thought, I'm not allowed to be happy and joyful because of how hard the world is. So it was like a bit of a revelation. I thought, oh, I'm allowed to enjoy my life. So that was a very fruitful place that the Metabhavna took me. Um, a few years later, in my mid-thirties, I'd asked, I was asked for ordination. I was training for ordination. And um, I was visiting Holloway Prison as, um, as the Buddhist chaplain there. And I was trying to find a way to care and empathise with, to connect with the people that I was meeting um, without kind of, in a way, agreeing, condoning um, aggression and hatred. And I was just sort of trying to puzzle, how could I do that? Um, I did care and I did really respond to the women that I met. And then there was a bit of me that was going, but I don't want, I don't approve of some of the things that they've, they've done. Um, and I think it was that was a time where I just started to really see the importance of meta for everyone um, and the suffering that they've experienced in their life usually which leads them to do things that cause suffering for others and uh, then in my late 30s when I was working at the Department for International Development on lots of very complicated issues, which slightly frazzled my brain, I think. Mm. Issues of uh, social inclusion and equality and uh, more domestic violence. And I was starting to get ill quite a lot. I think my body was saying no. And uh, that took the form of fatigue or kind of viral attacks, autoimmune issues. So I was still learning the lessons of self-meta, and how to take care of my body while saying yes to all sorts of other things, all sorts of causes um, that I cared about and wanted to respond to. And now, in my late 40s, there is still so much that I want to do, uh, so much that I want to say yes to. Uh, so at the moment, my list includes volunteering with the Food Hub, which I haven't done yet, but I'd really like to do go one morning with Shraddha Bahar on one of their runs collecting surplus food from the supermarket. I'd like to help with befriending some of the refugee families uh, that are in Shropshire. I'd really like to do some restorative justice work with the, uh, uh, the youth offending team in Shrewsbury. And I'd really like to support Extinction Rebellion, which I imagine Akasha Raja will talk a little bit more about next week so uh, so there's all these things that I want to say yes to and I need to keep remembering that my health can actually be quite fragile and I can't push my body too far or I'll end up like this little lass here on her back or the other one falling into a black hole and also I need to remember that uh, well the main way that I've chosen to channel my altruistic energy to uh, ch channel my energy is, is helping to run this Buddhist centre 
and uh, be part of this spiritual community. Um, yeah, and that, that is my priority. And I want that to not be uh, shortchanged uh, by whatever else I might do. And yet, I want to do more. So in a way, I wanted to explore this theme, this 21st century Bodhisattva theme, because it is, um, in a way, it's just a conundrum for me. And I want to ponder it more deeply. Um, And I want to talk to other people about it. Um, And uh, get other people's ideas and advice. In a way, I just think if we talk about it more together, we've got more chance of... um, Helping each other look out for these pitfalls. Um, yeah, and kind of finding what is actually the Bodhisattva path rather than, uh, yeah, some of the hazards along the way. So before I end, there's just a couple of other little things there. Um, so one is, I don't know if you can see it, this little, there's a sort of platter with various little things on it, including Battenbergs and chocolate eclairs and Swiss rolls um, and a little bottle of something bubbly. So in a way that's an image of of when in a way we can't bear it and we sort of seek solace in comfort of some kind. That's just a sort of image and emblematic of all sorts of things we might do to seek a bit of kind of pleasure and and comfort to kind of try and make the pain go away a bit. So it's not that I'm against Battenberg. I really like Battenberg, but uh, it's a a, a symbol of uh, when we do that. And then on the other side of the candle, there's a a little gold box um, with a load of gold coins in it. Um, And in a way, that's an image of where we just sort of abandon the path entirely because it just feels too much and we think we're never going to make any difference. So we may as well just sort of focus on our own little world and us being okay, me having enough for what I need, kind of, which can just end up being me amassing my gold and uh, counting up what I've got. So in a way, the other pitfalls that I talked about before are when we're, get, we're kind of overdoing it on the trying to do too much for others' side. But there are other pitfalls where we just think sod it um, and just kind of focus on ourselves in some way, which probably doesn't actually help ourselves or anyone else, but uh, they're tempting. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 